Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, Work Party listeners. Money talks and so do we. We're talking to the best and brightest minds in finance for a special five-part Work Party Money Move series. Whether you want to learn about building generational wealth, strengthen your financial future as an entrepreneur or perfect your pitch, our experts have you covered. New episodes go live every Friday, so be sure to follow us wherever you listen to your podcast and you'll never miss an episode again. Hey everyone, I'm Jacqueline Johnson, the founder and CEO of Create and Cultivate, and this is Work Party, a podcast for a new generation of women who are ditching the rulebook and redefining the meaning of work on their own terms. In each episode, we bring in leading female entrepreneurs for real tech advice on the topics that matter most to the modern career woman, from hiring to mentorship to raising money and so much more. Whether you're pivoting to a new industry, negotiating a raise, turning your side hustle into a full-time gig, or pitching your company to investors, we're giving you the tips and tricks you need to take your career to the next level. Ready to make some money moves? Well, welcome to Work Party, the podcast. Over the course of a career, women may earn as much as $1 million less than their male peers. Building a business, a common path to build long-term wealth, is more difficult for women for a few reasons. Access to funding and the confidence gap are two of them. As the creator of social commerce platform LTK, formerly Reward Style and Like to Know It, Amber Vensbox is at the helm of the creator economy. She was recently named one of America's richest self-made women after her company's latest round of funding and remains one of the most successful entrepreneurs to date. But her success didn't come without her fair share of hard work and determination. Today, I'm chatting with Amber about how she overcame systems and dynamics that contributed to the gender wealth gap. She's also sharing her advice on how to gain and maintain confidence, support the future of female entrepreneurship, and how she's working to empower businesses of all sizes. Amber, welcome to this special Money Moves episode of Work Party. Let's start at the beginning. Before becoming an industry disruptor, you held various positions in fashion, jewelry designer, freelance stylist, wholesale intern, like you name it, you did a ton in fashion, which eventually led you to create a blog, a personal shopper and a blog at the same time, which ultimately led you to start your first business or LTK and diving into the world of content creation. So tell us about the early days, the light bulb moment to build LTK and what your vision for the brand was. 
know, the Dallas Morning News did this article and it said, meet the blogger. And blogger was just huge at the top of the page. And I was so thrilled about that article and just to get press on this website that I had built. I learned a couple of things in that article. I learned, first of all, that what I was doing was called blogging, which was a new concept to me because I thought I had a website that was a marketing, you know, my personal shopping business. And then the second thing I learned was the way that they described my business was that I was offering my services for free. And at the time, I just thought that maybe I had done a poor job explaining my business to the editor. And within a few months, I realized she was 100% right and that I was now offering my services for free and I needed to find a way to monetize. And so the light bulb moment really came when financially the rubber hit the road. And it was over a, a period of a few months, all of my offline clients moved online. And so instead of texting me to book appointments, they were texting me to say, the jeans are great. The bag's working well. Thanks. I love the new blog telling all my friends. And at the time with my website, it was expensive to build a custom website. And I was now paying for that. I was paying for hosting. I was paying a photographer. I was taking time away from my business to be publishing all this content. And it was at that point that my then boyfriend and now husband Baxter said, well, you know, what's, what's the plan? You've got to make a change. And I wanted to continue blogging. I loved blogging, but I needed a way to just monetize what I was doing. So I told him my frustration is that I'm sending them to these stores where they're still buying things. I know it. They're sending me pictures, but I'm just not able to earn a commission. And so it was really at that point in the fall. So it was about six months after I launched my blog that I needed to make a change. And so we, we truly went for a walk and we talked about how I was going to move my um, offline business online and, and build basically what was going to be a platform that allowed me and my friends to get paid a commission for the sales we drove online. I love it. And this is early days. So LTK launched in 2011 and phrases like influencer marketing, creator economy, these were not even in existence. To your point, everyone was still called bloggers. So this idea, I can imagine, was sort of a small scale experiment at first. But when did you realize you had something really big on your hands? You know, I think back over the last decade, I call them these like push off the sand moments. And I think anyone in their business can probably relate to that of like, there's a first sale moment or there's, there's these like things that happen and the things that come to my mind are, you know, when we were, you know, able to just pay rent when I was able to, to pay rent and like to move into an apartment or, you know, the excitement around hiring people, or we opened um, our London office or we launched this collaborations business. And then we had a conference and more retailers joined. We had our first, you know, LTK millionaire. And then fundraising, our first acquisition. So there's these sort of little, it's like uh, this like breadcrumb trail of like, keep going, keep going, keep going, you know? And so the very first one that I can remember was when we bought these desk chairs, because that felt like the first like tangible thing. And we had $800 to quote, open our office. And, but there was three of us working. And so I didn't know how we we're going to get like desks and chairs. My mom found these chairs on a, mm -hmm. like a garage sale in Fort Worth. And so we drove like an hour and stuffed these you know chairs from a, a different defunct business into the back of our car. And it felt like at that point, like we were really going to start. Oh my God. I love that so much. And I mean, to your point, there's been a, a billion milestones since that being said, early days, was it hard to convince partners to invest in such a specific new territory of business? You know, now I'm sure people are clamoring to invest, but at the time it was early. There wasn't a massive amount of content creators like there is now. So was it hard to sell that vision? And how did you get past that? So there was 
really, I guess, in the beginning, two groups of people that we were selling, certainly the fundraising. So we, the fundraising piece of it was, you know, we, it was Baxter and I put the dollars that we have, which were very limited dollars. And as we made them, we were putting them into the business. I'm talking like $500 at a time, $1,000 at a time. Um, and then we went to our larger group of friends um, as really angel investors. And we met them at a Irish pub and said, Hey, here's this idea. And it's working for Amber. We've got this prototype Will you guys contribute as well. And so we had to sell them on the concept. And that was around $25,000 that we raised at that point. But then the next thing was going out and convincing people who had been doing something as a hobby and who had a passion for maybe art or sharing creativity to say, Hey, what you're doing, you can actually make money on this because I find often, or at least I found then that artists and capitalists were two very different sets of people. And so I was trying to convince something that someone that was doing something for the beauty that they could actually make money on it and not scare them away. And so I was having to, to convince the bloggers of like how this was going to work. And then also going to the retailers. So my morning was spent with creators or bloggers at the time and my afternoon spent with retailers convincing them to pay people um, from a marketing budget. And at the time, the feedback that I got was, the, the undertone is we work with people who elevate us. We work with Vogue magazine because it's elevating to us. We work with, you know, celebrities because they're elevating to us. Bloggers, not elevating, not people who were considered to be doing real work. It was hobbyist mm-hmm. type work. And so it really wasn't on anyone's radar at the time. And it, and several people told me that this is career risking to me. You asking me to, to actually add a line item that's paying the girl down the street, taking pictures of herself in front of her garage. Totally. And like, I remember all those iterations of like bloggers aren't real editors or don't have real sway. And then it was the introduction of hashtag ad and and then people being upset that, you know, their these, you know, their favorite content creators were now making money in it. All the iterations and echelons of like the things that have sort of happened in a relatively short amount of time. In 2015, the company raised 15 million in funding and was valued at 290 million. So how did that moment feel? I mean, obviously that's a big leap and bound from your friends and family around. It completely. And Baxter and I didn't come from any sort of a network. And so what I mean by that is I had worked in LA and New York, but like at a very low level and had not developed any sort of relationships that were helpful to me or gave me any sort of Baxter the same. He was an engineer himself, but had no real relationships in Silicon Valley. And so these are two no-name people in a somewhat of a no-name place. Dallas has grown a lot since then, but definitely not known as a technology hub. We had more, I think, to our name with fashion, but that's a different story. Mm. And so, you know, it was a a total education for us, truly. I mean, we hit the road, we went and just met with different people. It was super educational to understand the way that other people thought about our business. I think I learned that I didn't know how to talk about our business to people who weren't inside of it and that it felt complicated to them. You know, I, at one point I was introduced as this guy's wife, like he brought his wife to the meeting. I was like, oh, interesting. (laughs) And so that was like a, you know, a different layer. I was also pregnant at the time, not showing, I was able to dress in a way that it was, it was not obvious to other people, but that was a dynamic that was happening. And I, you know, I, I learned a lot, but I will say it is, and you do learn a lot anytime that you're raising money because feedback from investors is honestly some of the biggest gift. And for people who are thinking critically and spending time, truly understanding your business. And so that really helped us to develop, but it was an emotional vampire to be totally honest. Like you're taking time outside of your work to go get turned down and down and down and down and down and down and down. And so by the time that we got there, it was hugely validating that someone believed in us. We felt like we had really earned it by that point, to be totally honest with you. And so it was a sigh of relief and, and it just keep, and I keep marching forward. It allowed us to honestly just refocus back on the business and get back to the work that we really wanted to be doing. When women own small businesses thrive, we all thrive. Learn more about the tools and resources MasterCard is offering from moving your biz online to best practices on digital security at mastercard.com smallbiz. Together, let's start something priceless. 
And then let's fast forward to the end of 2021, where you landed a $300 million investment from SoftBank's Vision Fund, which is super major. Congratulations. And I want to talk about that going from that, you know, 15 mil mark to now this 300 mil mark and the confidence gap that you're sort of talking about, you know, where you were, you go into your room, you're probably feeling like empowered, excited, ready to pitch. And they're like, he brought his wife, you know, and that feeling to now obviously being in with the biggest fund in the world and landing this thing. How did you learn to overcome those moments where you felt like people weren't taking you seriously? You know, I had real confidence in the business that we were pitching and in the people that we were pitching for. I, I always felt like I was in the room on behalf of our broader creator community. And so that I was the, their voice in the room. And I felt very strongly about the value of the work that they were doing. But I knew our business was working. By this point in 2021, we had been profitable for many years. What we learned early on was that being a business that was not, you know, we didn't have the dynamics that made it easy for us to fundraise that we were going to have to own our own destiny. And we're going to have to find profitability. And then hopefully in the future that we would, you know, that would give us every option to then decide to raise or not raise and put us in a strong position. So that's something that I would suggest to any entrepreneur. It truly did give us power. It's a, it's an interesting dynamic. You don't see a lot. I love that. And it's so interesting though, because I'm like, why is it? I mean, I similarly had a similar experience with Create and Cultivate. Like we ran extremely profitably, which is why I think we were able to exit. But I think when you look at, you know, on TV right now, you have Uber, the Uber show, the We Crash show, the WeWork, whatever, where they're burning. They constantly talk about burn rate and how these companies were spending millions of dollars a week, a day to run these businesses. So as women, it's like, I feel like we have such an uphill battle to prove that we also have to run businesses extremely profitably, which obviously makes it a less risky investment, which can set us up for success. But neither here nor there, I want to get into some of the money lessons you learned along the way. So what were some of the biggest money lessons you learned as you were building the company? I know you mentioned profitability, but is there anything you would do differently looking back when you were first building the business? Hmm, That's a great question. There are so many things that we did totally wrong. I think the thing that we, like the theme throughout all of that was just like focus on your mission. There were so many critical decision points. And I can actually remember being in specific conference room when these discussions were had. And it was, we felt like there was so much opportunity ahead of us. There were some quick wins that could be quick cash that were always attractive to you know a founder or business owner. There were also big decisions where there was always a winner and a loser. And so what I mean by that is our platform started out by being a platform for creators. And then we expanded to be a platform for brands, but we had to decide where those, those few dollars that we had went. And so we, we ultimately decided our mission is about creators. They are going to get the dollars in the investment. The brands will win on the back of that. But I will tell you, there were many years where brands were not happy because they wanted things from us. They almost wanted to treat us mm-hmm. like a development shop. They wanted to put in orders and have us build things for them. And we had to you know, kindly decline and kindly focus on, Hey, we're going to build your business, but in a different way, the way that you, the way that you're not thinking about so we just actually this year have now been able to expand and have tools for the brand side 10 years later. So I think if I was to look back and say some of the errors, some of the errors were when we chased rabbits, we chased rabbits on quick wins or we chased rabbits. There was, there was a period of time where we developed some retail tools that, uh, that they, people wanted to have on their websites or they wanted to have as part of like to know it. And ultimately we ended up pulling those back and deprecating those products because you know what you begin to realize is you create something. It's not just the cost to create, it's the cost to maintain it just like a home. So, you know, we had to like refocus um, our efforts. So I think a lot of it was around when we became distracted. Yeah, no, I, I love that because I think it's such a good point. Like you can be 
enticed by the bottom line by getting a big payday. But if it really isn't serving the greater mission, it can be really distraction and actually very detrimental to your business. But as a business owner, you're like, of course, I want to bring in revenue. So it's this hard sort of battle. But I like that idea of like focusing in. So you now run... I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I, see, I, have, I have one more that I think is it's really relevant and it's around the cost of human capital. So, mm. you know, you always hear people say like your business is only good as the people who are inside of it. Like you can have a great idea, but I can promise you if you don't have the right people executing it, it can, it just will not come to fruition. And so something that mm-hmm. we learned early on is we initially took the approach of um, we're going to have just a, a ton of people to get, get this off the ground. And what I would say is a ton of people, but, but all raking pebbles. And what we have now shifted to is we need people who are just moving boulders. And the concept, the other concept that's layered there is because we are going to let some fires burn. Some things are not going to go right. Not everyone's going to be happy with us, but we're going to focus on the biggest things that move the business forward. And we're going to find the best people to do it. And we're going to pay them really, really well. So they're not distracted or thinking about how they can better take care of their family. They're like totally locked and engaged here. And that's a financial decision. And I will say that was one of the biggest benefits of bringing on our first investor was he was constantly pushing back. He was said, you need better people. You need better people. You need better people. And so we were constantly being challenged to upgrade talent. And ultimately that was a huge you know, piece of the recipe to getting to where we are today. Yeah. I, I love that. I love the analogy of pebbles versus pushing boulders. So let's talk about being a woman in the workplace, you obviously manage a large team now. Women are just as likely as men to pursue high paying careers, but even in the same job, women are generally paid less than men. For instance, women managers earn 23% less than male managers on average. Why do you think the pay gap persists even at the highest paying levels when it comes to empowering women to ask for what they want or equal to their coworkers? Yeah. I think a lot of it comes down to just I, I, you know, this might be a controversial point of view, but I think it comes down to education. I think it comes down Mm -hmm. to like actually having data on a page and in deep partnership with your people team and having just pay bands for every single position in your organization. And when you have a pay band and you are able to look at it really to see objectively who qualifies for what, and you've taken gender and any other kind of diversity metric off the page, you're able to make better decisions about it. But, you know, I think it, it probably goes back to, to, the legacy thought that was not, I mean, it was, this was like a generation or two ago where the, the common situation in a family was that the, the man was the, the breadwinner of the household. And of course, over the last 50 years, things have changed tremendously. And so I do think that there's some legacy creeping in, but the way that we as an organization try to overcome that is by making sure that we have objective measures. It's on a page. Everyone is adhering to that. And we're constantly measuring to make sure that there's not discrepancies, whether it's on gender or ability or race or anything else. Absolutely. And for someone who's listening, who doesn't know what a pay band is, can you just explain a little bit what that is? Yes, exactly. So we actually work with outside organizations that we contribute to, they contribute back to us. And so we're sharing information across many companies. We pay for this information, but it allows us to see what is market comp. And we actually do this nationally. So we use, this has changed over the pandemic. So we used to do it based on what should this person be paid based on, you know, their skill set and their titling based in Dallas or in New York or based in LA. We now do it nationally because we believe that in our organization, you can live anywhere and do a great job. And we want you mm. to have the flexibility to do what you're going to do. So we look at it nationally and it basically shows you just kind of a range of what that skill set and what that title is paid in like organizations. So at your same revenue level or at your same size of company. And so we make sure that we are matching to, and then we've set a standard for our organization of where, you know, do you want to be paying at the 50 percentile, like just right in the middle of companies like yourself, or do you want to be at 75 or higher? And then we stick to that across the board. I love that. So 
For women who go in to negotiate their raise, let's say they typically don't get them. And oftentimes women who negotiate, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this, I certainly have, get feedback that they're a little aggressive, bossy, intimidating. But it's this double-edged sword, right? Because you're like, I need to go in and ask for a raise. I'm doing the work. But then I become like noted as someone who might be difficult. And I think this is something, I forget which, which music artist says, but there, she was asking for um, specific things on the set and she was labeled as difficult. And she's like, no, I know what I want. Like I, I'm asking for what I want and I'm in control of that. But how do you sort of deal with the, that double-edged sword on the daily? And, and what suggestions do you have for women who are looking to kind of play that game, go in, ask for the raise, but are nervous about the background? they might receive. Yeah. A couple of things. So one is I actually think that something that people undervalue when they're applying for jobs is actually the moral compass of the leaders in that organization. So what is it that those leaders stand for? What are they known mm -hmm. for being like? Because that is a trickle down culture. They're, they're setting the tone for comp across the board. So, and maybe if a big enough organization, what is the, the perception of, you know, their board members? Like how do they act? Is there a way that you can see that? But then at least at a founder or a boss level, um, understanding who this person is at the deepest level. I think the, the next thing is we have a very, like on a, on a male to female ratio, we, we way over index on female in our organization. And so I think that's something too, for people to look at is like, do women work in your organization and do, are they in areas of leadership in your organization? Because that will also tell you, do I have the ability to be in an area of leadership in this organization? Because often you see mm. someone is there that can identify you. They know that they got there. They know that you can get there. And so they have a different perspective on uh, who can sit in that seat. So I think those are two things that you can do sort of outside looking in. The third thing is I always say perform the job that you want. And so not the job that you have. So when people come to me and say, I think that I'm ready to be a VP, I pull out a VP job description and I say, are you performing these duties? Okay. And if not, once you are then performing in, in the duties within that role, in our organization, you are performing that role before you are promoted to that role. And then that, that role has its own salary band as well. So that's one way to go about it. I think the other thing is making sure that you're giving discretionary effort and then layer in, hey, advocate for yourself. So whether it's an end of month, like, hey, I want to give you my boss an end of month review. I want to show you how I think I did. Here's the metrics by which I measured myself. Here's how I'm, you know, and hey, can you give me feedback? Because that shows someone that not just at the review cycle or at the end of year, you're saying, I need more money, but you've actually been asking for coaching and feedback. And so all throughout the year, month by month, they've seen where you've been succeeding and trying harder. And so you're setting yourself up for success. I think of it as the same thing as like making deposits um, before, you know, you ask for that sort of debit. It's just like in relationships in life. Like, I'm not going to show up and say, Hey, will you like babysit my kids? If you know, we're not, if I'm not like also offering things for you all the time. And like, we have that relationship built in. And so it's and the, not all of those have to tie together, but I think those are, are some things that you can do. And you can think about a, a mix of those um, as you choose the organizations that you work at. And I will, the last thing I'll say is talented people, I think have every opportunity to work where they want right now. There is certainly a, a labor shortage. And I think that the, those of us who are working for organizations mm. are in the power seat as far as a real demand for very talented people. And so mm -hmm. I do think that we today more than ever have the opportunity to say, I want to work for someone whose values are, are demonstrated and aligned to what I'm looking for. Absolutely agree with you on every level, asking for feedback and, and having those open conversations, not just during like promotion time is so, so, so smart. Such good advice. So in April, you launched LTK Connect, a self-service product designed to help companies of all sizes connect directly with creators to drive traffic, sales, and increase brand awareness. Access to this kind of platform was essentially safe for larger brands up until this point, which is amazing. So tell us a little bit about this platform and what it means for small businesses. Yep. So you mentioned it before that the bulk of um, the, the way that we've been able to expand our services for brands, it started with them just being able to commission 
our creators for driving sales, just like a salesperson in a store. The second layer to that is now brands coming at us and saying, hey, who should I be working with? I want to pay someone to talk about my sale period or a new product that I'm launching. And so as they make those incremental investments, we have been able to work with some of the largest brands in the world in order to do that. And so combined from a commission standpoint and a collaboration standpoint, as we call it, as of last summer, our creators have been paid over a billion dollars from brands. So those enterprise level brands are, you know, I, I say that they work on really just like a scientific level. Like they truly have it down to a science the way that they're working. Mm. They know exactly what's going to happen when they put a dollar in the same way they, you know, even better than what they're getting from like TV and other digital advertising. And so now that we've worked with them to kind of develop those programs, we've been able to parallel invest in a platform that does this for small businesses who don't have the teams to help them to think more critically and understand how to cast and how to to pay and how to just basically organize their entire influencer marketing system. So what I would say is we are taking people out of spreadsheets and into a platform that is cloud-based that their entire team can use and that it's incrementing through more and more different ways that they could work with creators, but a holistic view of that. So I was a small, you know, you knew I was a small business with my personal shopping. I also prior to that actually had a jewelry line for 10 years. So I know intimately what it's like to be your own manufacturer brand selling direct to consumer and also into retailers. And what I'm excited for, for this platform, which is what I spoke to earlier about us having to make choices about, okay, creator first. And then now we're going to offer that same tool for these brands is I think of them, they're creators of a different kind and to put the keys in their hand to, to be their own mm-hmm. businesses and own bosses mm-hmm. and to succeed tremendously on their own terms is what we're doing. And so actually with, you can tell I'm hyped up about it. It's been a long time coming. The vision has been there for a long time. And I just, I love the independence that it gives these brands. And also we're investing alongside these brands a million dollars so that these small businesses in 2022 have our dollars alongside them to help expand their influencer marketing more quickly. So that's a pledge that we're making to these brands who are, are jumping on and working with our creators. That is amazing. Well, we have time for a few rapid fire questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. My typical workday starts with getting four kids dressed and fed and in the car <laughs> and then coffee. <laughs> wow. Wow. A lot of coffee. Being financially independent is Critical and confidence building. The women who support me are? Generous with their learnings, honest, and they make room for me. I love that. If I had $50,000 right now, I would invest it in? LTK and crypto. Yes. Oh my God. I mean, please let me get, yes, LTK and crypto for sure. Thank you so much, Amber. Where can our listeners follow you and find more information on LTK Connect? Yes. So they can follow me at Amber Vins Box on Instagram and our LTK HQ also on Instagram shop LTK. And then for connect, they can go to um, our website and apply through the website and hopefully qualify for some of the investment we're sticking alongside these brands. That's so exciting. And reminder, if you want more money and finance advice, we're dropping new Money Move episodes every Friday. Tune in next week for my conversation with the founder and CEO of Enrich Her, Dr. Rashwana Novellas. We're diving into all things funding from perfecting your pitch to raising capital, scaling your business. Thank you so much, Amber. Thank you, Jacqueline. For more inspiring conversations like this one, follow the Work Party Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to rate and review us or show us some love on social. We love seeing you tune in every week and share your favorite episodes. We're at Work Party on Instagram and at It's a Work Party on Facebook and Twitter. I'm your host, Jacqueline Johnson, and this is Work Party.